So last week we began our series in preparation for Easter in uh, Psalms and looking at the, the, the songbook of Israel. And the, and the psalm that we started out with was probably the, one of the most well-known psalms, Psalm 23. And that is where David, he has discovered this incredible and beautiful life with the Lord. That he's saying, I have found that God, the creator of the universe, wants to be my shepherd. He wants to walk with me that close. He wants to know me and love me and direct my life. That David discovered this. And he put together this psalm as really, as not only a song for Israel, the people of God to sing, but also he put it together as an invitation for you and I to know God, not as this distant figure, but a God who wants to be close, a vo uh, that his voice would be in our soul, that we can hear and discern. You know, oftentimes when uh, pastors, I've done it before too, when we talk about that shepherd and that sheep dynamic, we, we talk about, you know, us being uh, stupid sheep, right? That's kind of the, the humor. I, uh, it connects with my, one of my favorite far sides that is there where all of a sudden there's epiphany. An epiphany of a sheep, he says, wait, wait, listen to me. We don't have to be just sheep. I thought that for sure the far side would get. <laughs> I, okay, yeah, you guys, it was right there. <laughs> but you know, that really wasn't the emphasis of Psalm 3, that, this idea. Not that, that we're, we, we have to be sheep. It was really that we get to be among the flock of God's. That we get this if we want, if we desire, we get to, to feel the shepherd's hand taking care of us. We get to hear his voice. Such a beautiful thing. David is saying, I found it. It's the best thing in all of life. And you all get to have it too. Now the next psalm we're gonna look at this morning is uh, the psalm also by David. And, and probably almost, almost as well known as Psalm 23 is Psalm 51. If you would, would you... Um, it, there's Bibles located in the seats in front of you, if you haven't brought your own. Um, and we're going to be reading through Psalm 51. And Psalm 23 is so crucial because it gives us an invitation of the life that God wants for us Psalm, uh, uh, that's Psalm 23, Psalm 51 is also crucial because it deals with this important question. What do you do if you've wandered away? And not just a little bit of wandering, but a lot of wandering. What if you do, if maybe you had the, the Lord as your good shepherd and and yet you've made some decisions. Maybe there was a rebelliousness in your heart. Maybe there was a, a cynicism in your heart. Maybe there was a sin that you committed, that you've done, and man, you know you are far off, far away from the shepherd. 
and you're not sure with the depth of your sin or cynicism, you're not sure if you can find your way back. And even if you can find your way back, maybe if miraculously you can, you're you're so far away, even if you could, you're not really sure if the good shepherd wants you back. What do you do? David was in that exact situation. David, who had given us Psalm 23, this beautiful invitation, he had committed a very significant, actually several, sins. Let me give you the story that's behind Psalm 51. David was king, and his warriors, his fighters, were off fighting a battle, and as a king, he should have been on the battlefield, but he decided to stay back, sleep in his palace, enjoy the good life. He was restless one night and he got up and he was wandering on the, the top of his palace and uh, in his restlessness, he noticed a woman, a beautiful woman. Maybe by the moonlight, he could recognize that she was beautiful and she was bathing. And apparently there was a lust that began to stir in his heart. So he sent a messenger and she went, uh, the messenger went and asked who she was. Her name was Bathsheba and she was married. In fact, she had a husband who was fighting for his king. Right there, it should have been the end of it, right? Wasn't. David invites her in the bed. He sleeps with her and done, right? Sends her back home. He's good. He fulfilled his lust. He's done. There's a problem. Bathsheba sends word she's pregnant. Now here's the issue, is everybody's going to ask, how did she get pregnant when her husband was fighting in the war? This is a situation. David has to figure out how to cover up his sins. So her husband's name is Uriah. So he sends a message and he brings Uriah back from the battlefield, you know, to get a report on how the war is going, right? So he gets a report from Uriah. He says, Uriah, well done. Now go, you know, spend some time with your uh, wife and then I'll send you back to the battlefield, right? A little nice cover-up. Well, there's a problem in David's cover-up scheme is that Uriah has a noble heart. And Uriah, while his fellow warriors are sleeping in tents on the ground for their king and for their commander, he doesn't want to go and sleep in his comfy bed with his beautiful wife. It's noble, isn't it? So he doesn't go home. Good for Uriah. Not so good for David. Don't you hate when character gets in the way of your cover-up plans? I mean, it's just an issue. So, plan B. He brings Uriah back. I'll send you back Uriah. But he gets him nice and drunk. Isn't that also good? You can compromise someone's character with alcohol. So he gets him nice and drunk. He says, Uriah, I'll send you back. Go back. Be with your wife. Good. Guess what? Even with alcohol... It doesn't compromise Uriah's character. Darn it. Plan C. David writes a note and Uriah carries it and it's his own death sentence. 
And Uriah carries it to the battlefield, gives it to Joab, the commander, instructs him to pull back his commands, put Uriah right in the front in the fiercest battle that he would be killed. Joab does that, obeys the death sentence of the king that he transferred through Uriah. Uriah dies, Bathsheba, she's a widow. Now the king can take her as another wife. He takes her as his wife. All good. Not all good. Scripture says the Lord was very displeased. Someone knocks on King David's door. It's a prophet, Nathan. And he says, I have a story for you, king. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. The rich man has a lot of sheep, a lot of cattle, all sorts. The, the, the poor man, he doesn't have a lot. He, in fact, he just has one little lamb. And because he just has one little lamb, it's not like a normal lamb, but it, this lamb becomes a part of the family, like a, like a daughter. In fact, when he sleeps, Nathan is kind of Jesus-esque in his storytelling. The, he's got the, the poor man with his arms around this little lamb, right? This connection. And he says, King David, do you know that the rich man had a traveler that came? And he, because of, you know, customs of hospitality, he has to sacrifice a sheep, a lamb, and provide for the traveler. Well, he doesn't want to use any of his sheep. So he goes to the house of the poor man and takes that little lamb. I get the image right from his arms, right? This little parable. And he slaughters that lamb. And he gives it to the traveler. And David is listening to this story and he's so upset, he's got this righteous anger and he says, this man has to pay. And Nathan says, yeah, you're the man. Not in the good way you're the man, you're the man in the bad way. And he says this, Nathan says to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Listen to the heart of the father, of the good shepherd in this. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, David, I would have given you even And yet David, he wandered away. David would face consequences. The Lord would, would, in fact, not just like every day, there's consequences to our sin that I believe the Lord allows. But in this instance, and sometimes in our instances, God causes more consequences because our lives matter, our sin matter. He causes uh, severe consequences in David's life. But he says, I will not kill you. And also one of the consequences is that I will forgive you, which is amazing. So David, David, he receives the consequences. And yet at the same time, he asks for forgiveness and restoration. And that's what Psalm 51 is, is this beautiful model and example for us to pray before God, forgiveness. Let's read the first couple verses. David's context of Bathsheba, 
And Uriah says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from all of my sin. The question I asked as I think about the context and the depth of David's sin, how in the world did he have enough confidence after like violating two of the top 10, right? Adultery and murder. How, I think I would have like been in a corner weeping for the rest of my life. And yet he has the confidence to go before the father, even in the midst of murder and adultery, to ask for forgiveness. Where did he get this confidence? Friends, I think it's because David begins not with the depth of his own sin, but the depth of God's mercy and grace. Did you notice? He, he says, would you forgive me according to, according to what? It's right there in the scriptures. What is it? What is that? Yes, according to his unfailing love and according to his great compassion. Friends, David approaches God and he appeal, appeals to who God is, who he is, not that who David is. Friends, if you're struggling to receive the forgiveness of God. Maybe you're struggling and you feel your, depth, your sin is so deep, so profound. You've wandered off so far. Here's my suggestion for you. Focus in on the heart of the Father. Focus in on God's great compassion and mercy and love. And there is no sin that you have committed that is deeper than the mercy of God. You got that? There is no sin that you have committed. There's no rebellion that is deeper than the mercy of God. Jeremiah knew this just as David did. Lamentations 3.32, he says, though he brings grief consequences. He will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. It's a story many of you knew. No, we sang one of his hymns of John Newton. He was a slave trader. He participated in the slave trade and uh, he had an experience of Christ. Changed his life. He left the slave trade, became a pastor and a priest William Wilberforce was fighting slavery in England and he was trying to get John to tell his story. He couldn't. The depth of his sin was so hard on his soul. And yet at the end of his life, he finally composed all the names, uh, all the things that he knew to fight the slave trade. And there's a wonderful movie. If you've never seen it, Amazing Grace, I'd recommend you watching the movie. But um, this is John Newton speaking to uh, William Wilberforce, um, and he's finally composed the record of his sin. And he's blind now, mostly, mostly blind at the end of his life. Listen to his words and what he says. 
This is my confession. You must use it. Names, ship's records, ports, people. Everything I remember is in here. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. You must publish it. Blow a hole in their boat with it. Damn them with it. I wish I could remember all their names. My 20,000 ghosts, they all have names. Beautiful African names. We call them with just grunts, noises. We were apes. They were humans. I couldn't weep till I wrote this. I once was blind, but now I see. Didn't I write that too? Yes, you did. Well, now at last it's true. Now go, we'll go. We have lots of work to do, you and I. Two things I remember. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. We need to know both of those. David models beginning with the second, right? Beginning with Christ is a great savior. God is a God of mercy and grace and kindness. Then David not only models that beginning place, but then he moves to the second. He not only uh, makes an appeal according to the grace of God, but then he fully, true confession is he fully embraces his own sin. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned. What he's saying there is he's saying primarily all of sin. Yes, we hurt others, but first and foremost, it's a, a sin against our creator, the one who has the plans of the good, beautiful resurrection life. When we stray, we sin against him first and foremost. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you, when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. He's doing reference to a part of the ritual and the practice of sacrifice and confession. They would dip hyssop in the blood and sprinkle the blood for confession. He, he's talking about, he's crying out 
of the, of the faith, of the ritual of the faith to cleanse me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let my heart, uh, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed through confrontation, judgment, and consequence, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. What David is doing here is to his credit, he is not bargaining, he's not justifying, he's not diminishing his sin. What he's doing is he's fully owning, fully entering in, fully saying, this is me. Look at verse five again. Surely I was sinful at birth. He's saying, I get it, God. This wasn't a momentary slip up, but this was from my heart and my soul and my character. And this came out and rolled out. I am guilty as charged. Many of us can learn from David's example because we often try and bargain justify or diminish we say father if i make it up to you if i do this would you do that right that's a bargaining god says "Mm -mm, no Or, or we say really i mean she was beautiful i mean the devil made me do it she was that good look i almost had no choice in the process or how about the diminishing right you know god in the grand scheme of things (laughs) <laughs> Can you relate to that, right? I know I messed up here, but boy, there was... Yeah, I've done a lot of good as a king, right? I mean, I'm a man after your own heart, right? So scales, right? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. David fully enters in, and he says, I get it. It's me, in part because he knows that God is a God of great compassion and mercy, I think he's modeling the first beatitude, the first beautiful attitude that Jesus gives to start his famous Sermon on the Mount. And it's the key of entering and living in his kingdom in the here and now. Do you remember that very important beatitude? Blessed are the, what is it, Scott? Poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the poor in spirit? That's poverty of the soul. Poverty of the spirit. Saying, I get it. I understand. It's embracing. David is showing us how to embrace our sin. And Jesus says, and I will grant the kingdom and life in my kingdom here and now. So uh, the, the contrite heart is one that knows how much it owes and how little it deserves. The poor in spirit is one that knows how much it owes and how little it deserves. There's a story from the Great Awakening, a time when the Spirit of God was moving in a powerful way in our nation. It was calling us back to the ways passion for Jesus, passion for the Lord. And there was repentance and confession. I pray that the Lord would do it again in our nation. 
There's a story from Jonathan Edwards, and he was leading a prayer meeting. It was just a little prayer meeting. It was 800 men was gathered at this prayer meeting. And as the story goes, there was a wife that sent a message to Jonathan Edwards, a little note, and he read it in private. And it said, would you please pray for my husband? He is becoming unloving, prideful, and difficult. Jonathan Edwards thought perhaps that her husband was in this gathering of 800 men. And so he decided to read, he read the message out loud. And he said, if you are here, would you be willing to raise your hand and I'll let all of the assembly pray for you? 300 hands went up. It was a time of great poverty of spirit, of owning our sin, owning our brokenness. The depth of God's love is deeper than any of the darkest sin in our lives. Would we trust him to be real, honest, and authentic to gaze upon our own soul? Verse 10. I'm going to read verse 10 through 12 and then also 16 and 17 because they go so well together. If you've never, if you, if you haven't highlighted these verses, boy, these would be good verses to highlight. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise that broken heart, that broken spirit. What David is doing so beautifully is not simply lamenting the actions that were sinful, but he's lamenting the condition of his heart. He's not simply longing for pardon, but he's longing for purity, amen? He's saying, I get it, Father, that you're not just after right action. Yes, the sacrifices, the rituals of the faith, the rhythms of the faith that he's talking about in verses 16 and 17, that is all good, but it's not enough. It is not enough. Not trying to diminish any of the rituals or any of the things that we say, the confessions, what we do and say, but he's saying that's not enough. What I'm after is right here. The motions, the rhythms, good but not enough. I'm calling you. David's saying, I I get it. My spirit is broken. My heart is shattered. I lay it before you, God. Some of you know my favorite question that Jesus asks in the New Testament. He asks many questions. And my favorite question is, are you so dull? Perhaps because he asks it all the time of me. Are you so dull? And do you understand the context of that question is the same dynamic that we're seeing in Psalm 51. He says, are you so dull? 
He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach. And I'm not after your stomach. That's secondary. I'm after. I mean, stomach is good. I don't want to diminish, but it's not enough. Heart, soul, your interior life. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. The lust, the anger, all of that junk. It's not about food. It's about soul. There's a writer, author, he was on a blog, Paul Miller, and a number of years ago, he decided to make a year-long commitment to disconnect. Disconnect from all internet, right? Because he wanted to address the issues going on in his life. And he thought that would be a really, really healthy move. So he unplugged his internet. He exchanged his uh, smartphone for a dumb phone, right? He disconnected from all of that. And after a year, he abided by a full year, disconnected from that. And then he jumped back after a blog and he wrote this. Now I'm back on and I'm supposed to tell you how this uh, fasting of a year has solved all my problems. I'm supposed to t- uh, tell you that I've been enlightened, that now I'm more real, now I'm more perfect. What I do know is that I can't blame the internet or any circumstance for my problems. In other words, he's saying, I figured out. My problems don't have to do with the outside stuff. They can influence it for sure. But where's the source of our problems? That's what God is after. That's what God is after. Look again at Psalm 10, uh, verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Why I believe this is so profound and it's right in the center there of the psalm is because David is asking for the presence of the spirit of God and the renewal of his own presence. Friends, I don't think that we understand this idea of presence of God enough. In fact, we, we reason it out, we say, well, isn't he God? Isn't he omnipresent? He's always present, which is true. But there's another measure that scripture says. Some call it a manifest presence. And really, I would liken it to what I would call an intimacy that's there. That the presence, the spirit of God fills our soul in a different way. Especially when we're gathered as a community of faith. Sometimes you could feel it in, in the, the worship and Sean's sharing and the, the baptism. Could, you could feel his manifest presence. So many scholars would say, I, I would, should say some scholars would say, that David is not saying, Lord, don't take the presence of salvation away. He's talking about the presence of intimacy with his good shepherd away. Isn't it interesting that David is not praying 
that he would get back his kingship and all of those things. What is he praying? That life with the shepherd, your presence in my life, please don't take it away. took the liberty of inviting um, our newest staff member, Josh, forward. Um, And Josh is um, our director of community life and outreach. Grab a stool back there, Josh. And uh, um, we put Josh through uh, quite an interview process. (laughs) Sorry again uh, for that. But really, through the, uh, the course of that, we shared a depth of, of heart and soul. And I know that, that Josh has experienced um, many of these things that David is talking about. And I wanted to ask him, and he was willing to, to share and reflect with us together, is Josh, can you relate to David's longing for the presence, uh, the joy of God's presence um, in that place? I've heard the sermon once already and was moved by it. I listened to it a second time and I'm deeply, deeply moved by it. This psalm, Psalm 51, has been one of the great companions in my faith journey. I went through a season of deep brokenness where I thought my life was over. I thought I'd lose my ministry, my career, my family, everything. And in that place where my sin which had been hidden, became exposed. I was in a deep, dark pit, and I longed for nothing more than than God's presence. Mm -hmm. God's presence in that way. Um, How did you understand this idea of intimacy with God and sin? That, that, That lack of compatibility, I guess. Theologically, my, my sin was an offense against God's holiness. But that's not the whole of it. Mm-hmm. It was more so an offense against my intimacy with him. It was a severing of relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And the, the consequence for me was disconnect from the God I love so deeply. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel a lack of his presence. Mm-hmm. I felt a lack of my connection uh, to mm-hmm. God. All right, excellent. And then um, David prays in verse 12, prays not only for the Holy Spirit in the presence, but also he prays for his own spirit and a willing spirit. Why do you think, Josh, he prayed that, that he included in that in verse 12? For, for me, in, in the pit of despair, I had nothing. Mm-hmm. I didn't have hope. Mm-hmm. I had theology for other people. I could counsel people, I could encourage them out of that place, but I could not do it for myself. So I relate with David. I need a willingness to have hope, to have belief, to believe that God is the God he says he is. My, my sin is, I, is, is a black dog of death that pursued me to the pit, that wanted nothing more than to destroy my life and got pretty close. Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, pursued me with, with so much more gusto mm-hmm. um, that in that place, a willingness to believe that God might actually still love me. Mm-hmm. And so you experienced his restoration. I was thinking um, the willingness was 
in part, I know I've been a place where I felt like I could not turn to God. Like I had nothing within me that was drawing me back to him. And yet I felt like that was part of his grace that he would say, no, 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 I'll give you that ability when you don't have it, Eric. I'll give you in that willingness he actually provided if I received it, that willingness to repent, to confess, to believe again, audacity of hope, right? To, to hope again that he would restore me once again. Yeah, part of what's amazing about this psalm <clears throat> is that it's a psalm of contrition. It's a psalm of guilt, of admitting and owning, mm-hmm. but it's not a psalm of shame. Yeah. And when you're in that pit, you believe that you are your sin. You believe that the worst parts of you are who you really are. Mm-hmm. And for, for, for Christ to enter into that place and to whisper, you are beloved, you mm-hmm. are a child, you are forgiven, you are chosen. Mm-hmm. Rebirth hope and leads to restoration. Amen, amen. Shame is from the enemy. Restoration is from the Father. That that uh, that confession is all leading to His desire for restoration. Thank you, Josh. Can we thank Josh for willing to share? Awesome. Uh, verse thirteen. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, and, who are, um, and who, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. And then many believe the last two verses were added to David's words so the whole nation could walk through um, the psalm with David. What struck me about those verses that we just read is that David was not asking for a little bit of restoration, was he? What was he asking for? He wasn't even asking for his kingdom. He was asking that again, God, would you use me to proclaim your goodness and your truth? Would you use me to to worship, to to lead your worshipers again in your your kingdom? Go to that final fill-in-the-blank, Stephen, that don't ask for that, he doesn't ask for that little restoration, but that full and abundant life that's there. Makes me think of the the prodigal son. That's probably the the most famous confessional restoration story in the New Testament that Jesus gives. We, We know it well. Oftentimes we miss this about the story of the prodigal son. When he finally comes to his senses, when he finally decides to go back to the father and ask for restoration, in his plans, he doesn't go to be asked to, to be restored as a son. He said, that's done. If I could just be a servant in my father's house, that's all I want. And so he goes back and he asks the father, right? He says, father, and he, and he gives out his little prepared, um, his prepared confession. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, right? I don't not, just if, if you'd let me be your servant, that's good enough. And what does the father say? Okay, I'll let you squeak in. He doesn't say that, does he? What's he say? 
Get the, get the sandals for his feet, the ring for his finger, the robe. Kill the fattened calf. My son who was dead, now he is alive again. Friends, I think sometimes we think the depth of our sin makes us second-class Christians. And the grace of God says, no way. Not a little bit of restoration. Full restoration to the daughter of the king, the son of the king that I've created you for. There is no sin. And I think our culture has a list of sins. Divorce. You can be forgiven, but second class. Anything sexual. Anything sexual. Any prison. Second class Christian. The mercy and the grace of God says, no way. No way. So we can't, uh, all right, I know we're out of time. I just got to do this one last story because it's so good. There's a pastor who, uh, go ahead, Brittany, Beth, if you want to come forward. There's a, um, a pastor who was describing a confessional with a young woman. He said she was very intellectual, very sophisticated, very sexually experienced. And this young woman felt a deep unhappiness in her own life, and she was there in confession. And the pastor said there was not a childlike bone in her body. He wrote she had lost all innocence and sweetness to her. And after hearing the woman's confession as the pastor, he offered her this prescription, re-virginization. He said, let me explain. He explained that forests can be destroyed by pollution and by fire, as was the case some years ago with Yellowstone National Park. Sometimes only black soot remains where once there had been a forest. However, as was true at Yellowstone, given enough time, the rains will come, the sun will shine, and slowly the vegetation emerges, the flowers come back, the trees begin to grow, the beauty the beauty returns, and in a manner of speaking, the forest is re-virginized. By the grace of God, he can re-virginize us. He can bring the beauty of resurrection life back to you and me once again. The rain is his mercy. The sun is his forgiveness. The new growth is the testimony of his life. I just really hated to preach through Psalm 51 without giving us an opportunity to enter deeply with the Lord. Can we take just a few minutes if you'd close your eyes, and is there any way that, what's the discussion that you need to have with the Lord right now? Perhaps right now you, you're like David. The condition of your heart is like David before Nathan came. You're in denial. There's a hardness to your heart. 
And he's wanting to say, my child, I'll forgive you. Would you confess? Would you enter in? Maybe you're right at the point where you you know your sin, you've confessed your sin, but you just can't receive God's forgiveness. In that circumstance, you just need to reflect on his mercy and grace, his tender kindness, and just receive.